On this show, you'll get actionable and usable advice. You'll hear about all aspects of growing a business to a business software company. Customer success, sales, funding, bootstrapping, exits, scaling, everything you need to know about growing a startup. And you'll get it from someone who's going through the same journey. Now your host, Joran Hoffman. Welcome back to already the third episode of season two. In this podcast, we discuss all topics on how to grow your B2B SaaS, no matter in which stage you are in. The basis of a good company is its people. Recruiting and retaining good people will help you to grow your SaaS faster. This is easier said than done though. Having a strong company culture will help you doing this, but how do you build a strong culture? That is what we're discussing with Matt Wedekop today. He's the CEO of Dream Influence, a SaaS which is the Swiss knife for your influencer marketing, Next to this, he's also a board member at two companies, Wake Up Data and Morningscore. And before this, he was the COO and co-founder at Quick Order, a SaaS which he helped grow from zero to 6.5 million ARR. So get ready. We're going to pick Mats brain on how to build a strong culture. Welcome to the show, Mats. Thank you a lot. Really looking forward to this. I'd like to start off with this question. Why should people listen to you today? Yeah, so my background as you described very well before is that I've built a company, a SaaS company from zero to somewhere between 6.5 and 7 million ARR. And when I left roughly, what's that now? One and a half years ago, we were 70 people and that obviously taught me a lot. And then I've always been super passionate about setting the right team. I always believed in the power of teams before I became an entrepreneur in my very young days and early career. I was a middle manager at a big sales company where there was this maybe a bit old-fashioned way of running things where it was a lot of whip and a lot of pushing people. When I took over my first team, I flipped that upside down because I believed in, in training and I believed in setting my team free to do what they were best at and learning from each other. And we beat the goal eight months in a row and that had never happened before. So I think just from very early on in my leadership career, I experienced the power of a strong culture being it in a team or in an entire company. So that really made me double down with time and perfect everything from hiring to onboarding to training while being a part of the team. And then in the end, offboarding when people leave. Done it once before, now doing it again in Dream. When I joined Dream, we were five or six people and now we're 16. That's a little less than a year ago and it's a bootstrapped company. So that's pretty great. And trying to do it again and supercharge it this time. Nice, nice. And I think one thing you said as in you learned how you don't want it. So you actually are going to do it like the complete opposite route. I think everybody has an example where they had a manager which they don't like. And that's always a learning experience, like how you actually should lead. You already said it. You want to build a strong culture, but I guess maybe with a really basic question, what do you determine as a strong culture? So when you get a strong culture, it's not just where it's on the wall or on some fancy posters. I think that's a bullying victim of the courtyard. It needs to be something that actually lives in the company. The first thing I did when I joined Dream was to sit down with the founding team and then not define, but identify what are the core values of the company. Because it's not something you define. It's something that lives in the company from the very first day that it's founded. And often it's the founders that create the first motion of those values But the first between 50 and 100 hires, depending on the setup, is actually what I consider cultural co-founders. 
And that's why it's so important for in order to create a strong culture and have a strong culture that you define or identify rather those very core values. It's never more than three. And then you religiously hire and fire based on those. That's really how you foster a strong culture. And you can see when you enter a company where that lives, you can see everybody has this unified way of moving around and making decisions because they have this shared compass, which is the core values. And that's what's creating the strong culture. Yeah. And I guess that's one thing like you have to have in place or you need to have, you need to identify them as you say it. What else needs to be in place before you can really start building a culture? Yeah, obviously you need the right team. Let's say you start identifying those core values and you figure out there's actually people on the team that is not able to live them then the first step you have to do is get rid of those people. And it sounds hard, but it's reality. If you have somebody that is not a fit, they will never be able to perform. When that's done, so you have a core and a basis of a team, now you need to set some playing rules. So you need to have very specific agreements on how we engage with each other. And obviously the core values are the headlines of that, but there's so many facets to each value. So you need to outline, let's say feedback. Feedback is a thing that lives in every company. But how do we provide feedback to each other? When do we provide feedback to each other? And how do we make sure we implement that feedback so we continuously improve? That's one example of an area where you really need to align as a team very early on. And the longer you wait to kind of make these frameworks for yourself and for your culture, the harder it gets because then you're not conscious about them while you hire your first one or two or three or five or maybe even 10 employees. And all of a sudden you have a mess and then you have a big bit of a big, big cleanup to do. So you really have to nail your team, nail your core values and start to build around those with rules of engagement. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense. Like I think indeed having those rules as indeed, as you mentioned, like how to communicate with each other is always a really good one and understanding that you will have different cultures because that might go really well in the next question, especially the Corona, of course, everybody worked remote. Now people are talking about, do we need to go back to the office? But let's not go in that discussion. In your opinion, can you have a strong culture while working remotely? Oh, it's a hard one. I don't think there is a true answer to it, but I'm probably, so in my companies and the companies I'll be running, that's a hard note. That will never work, but that's also because of the way I built the culture in the companies that I'm in and the kind of culture that attracts me as a employee and as a founder, as a CEO, what attracts me. So what our core values, just to give the example in three, is freedom and responsibility, it's accountability and it's execution. That's our three core values. and. Those three kind of requires you to be physically present. Otherwise, you will not be able to live those things. You can. It's really hard to keep people accountable online. It really easily turns into a pit fight. If you try to do that online, you need to be able to look each other in the eye. And freedom and responsibility means that you can actually flex. You could be hybrid. You could have... I personally have two days from home every week, but I prioritize to be in the office three days a week because I genuinely believe it's important. What lies under those values is something like direct, honest feedback at all times and honesty and transparency. That's sub parts of those three elements that in order for those to live, you need those three items. And that's really hard online. It's really hard. So I, I genuinely believe that at least for the companies that where I'm in, we need to be more together than apart. But I also realized that hybrid has its charm and it has its benefits, but fully remote. Actually, I'm yet to see it work. I haven't seen it work yet. I'm not saying it can't, but I haven't seen anybody nail it 100%. 
We're going to prove you wrong. Like we're actually doing f full remote at the moment. But I agree, I agree. I think some messages do get lost a lot more in, in translation plus being textual, where if you can have somebody in the office, it is going to be better. Like accountability, we fix it by focusing on output where you have clear things yeah. to find. But still, yeah, there's pros and cons to both of them. Yeah, there is, there is. And I think that's my point too, that there is no right way. Each company on is, is, is its own and there's no company that's the same. So just because it, I haven't seen it work doesn't mean it can't work. I think what I really missed during COVID and what became really apparent to me during COVID when everybody was sent home is that problem solving and innovation is two things that really suffered when people went remote entirely. So the developer that has some sort of annoying bug that they're trying to fix, where they might end up down in a rabbit hole sitting at home and spending a full day trying to fix that bug, where if they had been shoulder by shoulder, elbow by elbow with one of their colleagues, they might have been rubber dugging and the colleague had helped them solve it in five minutes. And also that chit chat over the tables and at the coffee machine where you pick up on, the, on those small subtle things and subtle issues around in the company that all of a sudden spark some ideas. And that's something that's really hard to create online. That doesn't mean that you can't. You just need to be very conscious about facilitating that part of the culture. I definitely agree. And I think last point on my side, like what we, for example, do is we have team weeks or at least we come together. So we fly everybody to the same place. So in, in yeah. three weeks, the devs actually coming here to the Netherlands. But I agree, like that's a moment where we look at the strategy, we look at the roadmap, we do some creative things, but it has to be planned. Like you can't just do it yeah. day by day. Exactly. When going back to building a strong company culture, what is the most common mistake companies make while trying to build a company culture? It's definitely not staying true to your culture. So let's say you, you're hiring your first VP or you may be hiring your first CTO if you don't have a CTO co-founder or maybe your first developer or something like like one of those very crucial hires early on. And you find this guy who has a girl who has an amazing resume. He or she is brilliant in the interview phase, but there's not a value match. So some of the values is conflicting between the candidate and the company values and the company culture. But because they are so technically gifted or they have this insane professional record with these beautiful logos on their resume, you get blindsided and you end up saying, ah, we'll make it work and this is an amazing profile and how lucky are we that we can get such a talented guy or girl to join our team and it never works out. And even if you keep them and they end up performing, you just kind of blindsided your own culture. You went down a slippery road because you'll do that again and you'll do it again and you'll do it again. And all of a sudden you're creating subcultures because those people that then are alike will start to create the small own subcultures in the company. And then you start having silos and then you start having turf wars in the company and you're starting to have politics and everything is going down the drain. So it's really staying true to the culture, to your core values and hiring and firing based on them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is indeed the most tricky thing because it's easy to say, indeed, we need somebody, we have a good profile, let's hire him. Yeah. But in the end, people make the culture. So if you not yes. stick with them, then you're going to create a different one indeed. Exactly. And that's why I'm saying that at least the first 50, if not the first 100, is cultural co-founders because they each impact the culture in their own way. And if you're not aligned on what the culture is like and you're not hiring based on it, then it's taking small D rounds every time. And it's actually changing a tiny bit every time you're putting somebody new on. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, you have something entirely different. 
And maybe you all of a sudden you'll have a company where people come in at nine and they leave at five. And it's pretty hard as a startup to run it that way. Not that people need to kill themselves working, but you need that kind of, especially in the early days, you need that grit, you need that grind, and you need that very hardworking mentality in order to get far. And before you know it, you've changed that. And that, that's really where I see a lot of people go wrong because they get they fall in love with the former results of candidates and what candidates says in their job interviews. And even worse, sometimes they don't even fall in love. They just don't know what they're doing because they don't have a stru- structured way of hiring. So it ends up being the classical, you invite somebody in that you think is nice, that applied, you have a cup of coffee, you have a chat, you like that the guy likes you. You think, oh, Joran was an, a genuinely nice guy. I could see myself drinking a beer with him. And you leave the job interview and you think, oh, Matt was a really nice guy. I think that was time well spent. But then your next thought is, what was the job actually about? And my next thought is, Joran even do the job. Oh, he was nice. We'll hire him. And if you go down that trap, then you just have a recipe for disaster really quickly. That actually often ends up being a lot of turnover in employees. It ends up being a lot of mishires. It creates a lot of confusion, a lot of uncertainty in the company because who's being fired next? And and then you just, you basically have a recipe for disaster. So structured hiring process based on your core values is the step two. So first you define your core values, then you define a very structured hiring process. can really recommend reading the book, Who? A, a Method for Hiring or the A method for hiring, that that's really good. And it's a framework that you basically can copy straight out of the book. It's better than not having something. I highly suggest to adopt, adapt it to your reality. But if you want to, you can just copy it and then you have something that, that would take you very far. Right. So we're gonna we're gonna link to the book in the show notes. One thing you mentioned, right? You need a startup grinding at the beginning. Also the beginning is the most important with the employees. And that's I think where it does go wrong a lot of times because you need the grinding you need to do a lot of things at the early stage you don't always have time to make it really structured but you need to have it structured to actually build the culture going forward i think that's where a big challenge is for a lot of companies yeah i think a lot of founders and myself included in my early days are so busy working in the business that they forget to work on the business and at least as the founding CEO, that's actually your job. If you have a co-founding team and you're the founding CEO, it's more important that you work on the business than in the business. That doesn't mean you shouldn't work in the business, but you're the one ultimately responsible for those things not going wrong. So you need to get them right from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And you're going to be the one defining the core values. So you also yeah. need to make sure that the structured high pro- hiring process is in place. Exactly. And also, if you haven't defined you call values for the business, it's really hard to create the vision and the strategy because it's all tied together. So you'll be missing a piece when you create the vision and the strategy for the business if you don't have the core values. And the other way around, it's really hard to define your core values if you don't know what the vision for the company is. Yeah, definitely makes sense. And when we talk about like other processes or strategies, is there anything else you've used to build a strong culture? Yes. Yeah, so I have this, it's my secret source actually. So I use a very specific talent assessment test called TT38. It's issued by a company called Talents Unlimited. It's basically based on Don Clifton's positive psychology and is most people probably know Strength Finder from Gallup. It's, the, it's in the same realm of personality testing. That test has been a cornerstone of one, identifying cultural fit, two, identifying that the candidate has to ride talent for doing the job and three it's been key to identify match to the nearest leader 
because that's another thing when you get a bit bigger and you're past the early stage and you start to have middle managers or VP level another thing that often goes wrong is that companies doesn't take into consideration that now we have another facet to our hiring now it's not only skills and cultural fit now we also need to make sure that this hire is a good fit with the nearest manager and that's also really good for that that test is really good for checking for that and then the fourth part of using that test is it's not only for recruiting it's actually for training and developing the employee afterwards and using it as a tool for hosting one-to-ones and moving the employee in the right direction and making sure that they are being played to their strengths because if everybody is high performing you also have a much easier time creating a high performing culture yeah that makes sense and do people then fill this out every year or every no, it's just once. So they do it when they get hired and then it's just yeah. being used. There. When you, so if they're really young, if they are, I'd say, 23 and below when you hire them, then we tend to, when they surpass 26, we tend to get them a new one because some things do move around until you hit that 26 mark. But after you're 26, it stays somewhat the same for the rest of your life. There's a few talents that moves with experience, but it's very much the same. There's no drastic changes after 26 so then it's just the basis of making sure to play that employee to to his or her strengths and making sure that he or she is maximizing the potential. Yeah, yeah, because you mentioned also, is it the right talent for doing the job? Can he do the job? Not does he have the knowledge, but does he have the things, you, characteristics yeah. you need to actually do the job? Exactly, the underlying things. So not so much the knowledge, yeah. but more the capabilities. So it's, yeah. let's say it's a financial role. As a financial role, you need to be very assessing, you need to be pretty analytical, you need to be able, you need to have the talent for structuring data and finding kind of the truth in the data pretty quickly. And you need to have the ability to do that and think it's fun and not be drained energy-wise from it. It should actually be something that you gain energy from doing. And in the test, the talents I would be looking for there would be something like assessing, analyzing, and maybe connecting. It's where you see connections between things. And those three talents would be something I would need to see in the top talents from that person. And then culture-wise, we are looking for things as targeted, responsible, and problem solver because how our culture is. So those three talents would also need to be in the top package. So we have three talents that always needs to be there. And then we have talents that are independent to the role and then talents that depends on the nearest manager and all three things need to be there in the candidate. So as much as it's a qualifier, it's actually more of a disqualifier in the hiring process when we kind of screen out for culture and fit for the role because you can have the perfect answers, can have I can have the perfect gut feeling with you as a person and as a candidate, but if the test tells me that you're not the right fit, then you're out. But I would never yeah. hire only based on the test. Because those two other things also needs to be there. Yeah, definitely makes sense. I think that's a good one because then you just don't go for your guts and for the answer somebody's giving in the interview, but you actually have the data behind it exactly. to align with it. Yeah, I think it's the closest thing you get to being data-driven in, in your hiring process. That sounds good. That sounds good. I think this sounds like the ideal scenario, right? But I think you also had a lot of challenges, obstacles while building the stream and yeah. coming to the conclusions you made. I guess, like, uh, can you tell a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I think it's all based on me making a lot of fuck-ups and running into a lot of glass walls and breaking my nose and having to get back up and just run into a new one. So I think I learned it the hard way when back in, when I was in Quake Order, when we hired our first developer, we basically had 
very little hiring experience. I never hired a technical person before. I obviously had my technical co-founder, but he never hired anybody before. So we ended up making this huge mishire where there was no cultural fit. And he, he was not even as good as we thought because we had no case in there. So we had no way of testing his actual skills. And it, it just showed us that it's really expensive. It's insane. It's not just the salary. That's what it is. You end up having somebody on the payroll for X amount of months that is basically just sucking money out of the bank. But it's all of the effort and all of the time that, that it actually takes away from the business where you are in hiring mode. And then you end up firing that person and now you have to do it all over again. And it's that opportunity cost that you really have to factor in when you think of building your team. And then I think early on, I also really struggled with having some sort of framework for aligning on one-to-ones and a book that helped me a lot to really create a framework for that was The Alliance by, by Chris Yeh and Reid Hoffman. It's really good. It talks about how you can kind of tailor goals for the individual employee and kind of make the employee see that they are not only working for the company by doing this tour of duty, as they call it, they are also working toward their own goals. So what you actually do in the one-to-ones is that you tie the employee's personal goals, personal life goals and career goals to goals in the business. So say if you were an employee of mine, Joran, and you had a dream of becoming an entrepreneur, then I would try to give you goals within dream that you could chase that would help you obtain skills or experience or knowledge that would put you one step closer to obtaining that dream. And then at the end of your tour of duty, which is time boxed, so it could be 12 months, we have a social contract that the next 12 months we're working together, we are working towards these goals together, and you're not leaving, I'm not letting you go if we are on path. And then at the end of that tour of duty, we have a very honest dialogue about, do you feel ready to take that step as an entrepreneur now? Or do you need another tour of duty? Are we doing another 12 months or 18 months? And then it just opens up this very transparent, honest dialogue with each employee about where are they on their journey. And what happened in quick order was over time, it actually became really strong, both marketing wise and recruiting wise, because all of those people that we helped obtain that dream, which some of them wasn't in quick order because everybody cannot become the CEO or the CMO or or whatever the dream was, because that position is most likely filled already. But we helped them land that dream job in another place. And what happened is that when they had people that were outgrowing the company where they were, they would point them to me and they would say, this was where I came up. This was where I achieved my dream. You should, if there's a position that fits you, you should definitely apply there. So I all of a sudden had this inbound funnel of super highly talented people that were vouched for by people that understood the culture of quick order. And that's magical when that happens. And that was really the alliance that kind of bootstarted or kickstarted that for me. But I think having that framework to to really help your employees succeed in any way you can, and it can be the alliance framework, it can be any other framework, but creating a framework where you help your employees achieve their dreams just creates so much loyalty, so much enthusiasm, so much goodwill, and it also creates this really nice inbound funnel of highly talented candidates and also sales. Because if it's employees that go to other companies that might be future customers of yours, or they might have customers that are relevant for you too, so you can start to lead, share, and it just creates this like ripple effect where you get so, so many positive things from it. But when you say it, in a very short way, what I'm actually saying is I'm helping my best employees leave my company. It sounds pretty okay. ludicrous. 
<laughs> but, but it's actually working. Yeah, yeah, but in the end, I guess like everybody is a, as an employee, you always have your next step in mind, right? You don't yeah. want to work as a marketing executive or as exactly. a sales executive, just like all the time. So you always have personal goals. I never heard of this before, but I think it's genius just because yeah. tying personal goals with business goals and making it super transparent, I think that's really good. Yeah, you just get so much from those employees. I just had a an employee recently that we had to let go, but she was so thankful for the time she had in Dream because of this, because we helped her get closer to her personal goals. And what also happens now is I'm helping her get her next job. So it's it really creates this belonging to the company and this very, a lot of gratitude towards the company that you worked for and you get ambassadors in the market. Yeah, yeah. And it's always good to keep the balance, of course, that the main focus is, of course, doing the job therein. Yeah. But this is, of course, like next to it. You're basically making them ready for the next yeah. step. Yeah, exactly. And we're tying the job therein to the next step. So it becomes very understandable and visible for the employee that, okay, I'm actually not stuck because let's be honest, let's say you're a marketing manager. What you're doing on a daily basis can become repetitive. It's a lot of the same. And you can end up feeling like, oh, my career is not moving or I should be progressing faster. But if it's very clear that what you're doing on a daily basis is actually taking one small step towards your dream job every day, yeah. then that's super motivating because you know yeah. why you're doing it. And you provide that, you tie the why of the job to the employee's dreams. And that's super strong, again, to create a strong culture where everybody wants to help everybody. Yeah, and I think it, it's also helping you as a company to make things more predictable because because you have yep. that trans conversation, people just exactly. don't leave right away because you already yeah. had those conversations, you're making them ready yep. and you're actually discussing it. Like it's, yeah, exactly. Again. It, it, that's a really great point. And that's one of the, I should think, one of the important points that I left out that it creates forecastability. I know three months in advance that somebody is ready to leave or is looking for the next thing. They advise me when they are looking for the next thing. So I have time to actually find that replacement and they can help find that replacement. Who better to find the replacement than the person that's actually doing the job right now? So it, it just creates a very way less volatile company running it that way. Growing a B2B SaaS is tough. We know. This is why we started Redditus. We help you to grow your monthly recurring revenue without high upfront costs. How? By leveraging someone else's network and only giving away a commission when they deliver you a paid client. It's called affiliate marketing. It's already a really cost-effective and scalable revenue channel. We even made it better for you. With Redditus, you can start for free and only start paying us when you generate revenue. Learn more at www.getredditus.com. When we when we go forward, I guess when we talk about Dream, I just, I'm going to call it Dream now as well. Uh, yeah, you help brands to connect with influencers. When we tie it back to B2B SaaS, like how important do you think it is to also leverage somebody else's network as a B2B SaaS company? I think, so that's basically just what we also discussed, right? I think the saying, your net worth is your network or your network is your net worth. I think that's very true. And that also goes for a company as a whole. So I think... What you're doing at Redius is brilliant, and especially for companies like MorningScore, where I'm the chairman, where it's product-led growth, where you can really utilize other experts in the field, people that are thought leaders. You can utilize that through 
something like affiliate. LinkedIn is coming with their thought leader apps and ads now. And I'm already thinking of some really fun ways to using that where imagine you have a client that's super happy. They might have a small audience on LinkedIn or maybe even a big audience on LinkedIn and you'll make them write out what they gained from using your SaaS on LinkedIn and then to create an even bigger win for them in order for them to boost their own profile. Because as we just discussed, your network is your net worth. So getting more exposure is great. You thought leader push their profile with their testimonial or with their case on what, let's say, Redias did for their business. So it becomes super authentic. It becomes with a strong CTA and it comes out way wider than it would normally would do. And you create a win-win. That's just one way of exploiting those thought leaders that are coming now. So I really think it's super important. And actually, I think it has never been more important to have that network and to have those true human connections because of AI. There's AI all, all over the place right now. And what is real and what is not? And search results are becoming less clear how, how that will look in the future. And will people actually search the way they're searching today? Or will they start asking AIs for recommendations? And how do you rank in an AI recommendation? And I think that uncertainty has made human to human connection way more important than ever before. So network is also becoming way more important than ever before. Yeah, exactly. Because in the end, I love AI and I love the ChatGPT, how it helps me in my day to day. But in the end, it's a standard answer and it can't give you anything. So if you ask it, like, what is the best restaurant in Utrecht or in, in Denmark, like, it's just going to go from data, but it's not actually yeah. somebody who went there and would exactly. give you the recommendation or exactly. used yeah. a B2B SaaS tool. Yeah, exactly. And people buy from people. So I believe that will become even stronger. And I now a lot of things are being done like this online on some sort of online call. We started in dream visiting clients again and going out and having physical meetings. I'm traveling to Oslo every month now to meet Norwegian clients and Norwegian leads because that's our next big market. And it works wonders. People are like, wow, why are you coming to our office? Yeah, hell yeah, I'm coming to your office. <laughs> so I think that's much a human connection for any B2B SaaS is going to be gold and it's going to be a differentiator going forward. Nice, nice. We're going to jump into advice per stage. I always like these questions at the end. So when we talk about building a strong culture, what kind of advice would you give somebody who's just starting out and grow to 10K monthly recurring revenue? Yeah. So if you're growing to 10K, you're probably just you and your co-founders. So I'd say be very conscious about, start talking about now at least as co-founders before you bring on your first employee, which type of company is it we want to build? Which type of culture is it that we want to build? And also make it very clear where you want to be in three years. Not as in we want to be at a 3 million ARR and we want to have 50 employees and we want to have Kaggle TV of this and that. No, well, if you envision where is the company in three years, well, how does it look? What's the feel when you're into the office? What's, what's the impact you've had on the world? What does the media say about you? What does the employee say about you as an employer? Kind of those things, envision those things and then Build on that because then you, you stay on course and you make sure you build a company that is built to last and doesn't just take in small wins. What kind of advice indeed would you give after that 10K MRR and growing to 10 million ARR? Yeah. yeah, so that's obviously a very huge span. So let me try to break it down a bit. 
until you hit around 3 million. Embrace that you can be a bit chaotic, that you don't need a process for everything, and that's the time where you can really experiment and you can afford to take a D route at that stage. It's not the end of the world. But when you surpass those 3 million, you created a real business. And now you actually figured out, based on all of those experiments and all of those swings you took at the ball, you figured out what works. Now you need to double down on that. You need to double down on what works. And that can be anything from how we hire, which people we hire, how do we do sales, how do we do marketing, how do we develop the product, how does all of the internal processes work, all of like very holistically in the company, what works, and then you do more of that. And then you supercharge that. And you do way less of course things. You don't have the same flexibility because it's not now it's about doubling down to get to that 10 million and three and a half X the company from there. So embrace that you can do a lot of experiments, do a lot of experiments early on, find your way. But when you found it, you need to actually acknowledge, okay, now it's time to double down. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice. A bit of personal advice. Like what would you wish you've known 10 years ago? And this could be really general or really specific. Yeah. Yeah, So 10 years ago, I was 17, 18. So on one hand, I wish I'd known how hard it is to actually do a starter. And it's not something that you just do because 18 year old me for that shit, man, I'm just going to do that. No problem. But on the other hand, if I knew how hard it was, I would probably never have started. <laughs> but if I were to change something that 10 years ago, if I were to do something entirely different that I think would have benefit me, benefited me wildly when I then founded my first company, then it would have been to, instead of just founding my own company, like dropping out of high school, founding my own company, quitting my middle manager job, then it would have been join a fast growing startup for three to five years. Be a part of that journey from a million to five or 10 million ARR, see what that looks like, and then start. I think that's probably the biggest thing. Get some experience before you get started, create some network within the field that you're starting in before you get started. And then it just dramatically increases the likelihood of success. If you can say you were part of a wildly successful startup when you're going to fundraise, call yourself Revolut alumni or Uber alumni or Airbnb alumni or whatever. One, there's probably somebody in there that can intro you to investors. And two, investors know that you've seen it from the inside, so you know what it takes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really good because you have to experience it at somebody yeah. else's money or at least somebody, somebody else's mistakes and then you can exactly. avoid to, to, to make your own. Yeah. yeah. And then if you feel like you're still missing something and you're most likely is when you're starting, one thing I wish I would have done earlier is to get a either an advisory board, just very like non-official, but surround yourself with three, four, five people that can contribute value. Don't fall into the trap of giving away a ton of equity to them. There's a lot of vultures out there that is just looking for grabbing equity from you, but find advisors in your network that wants you to succeed and wants to help you because it's you and not for their own benefit. And then if you want to go as far as getting a professional board, I highly advise that too, if you can afford it, that could be with a bit of equity, but no more than a percent or two for the early board, but surround yourself with somebody that is equally interested in the business and wants to help you succeed that have done it before that will help you navigate those big decisions and open doors for you that you couldn't open yourself. Yeah, exactly. Making sure that you leverage somebody else's network and don't make the mistakes. Yeah, exactly. 
the big mistakes. Nice. I don't know if you have time to answer, but I guess if people want to get in contact with you, what would be the best way to do? Definitely LinkedIn. Find me on, on my LinkedIn. I guess we can link it in the description of the podcast. But just hit me up in there. Connect with me. Always love to, to meet new people. Nice. We're going to definitely link it in there. Thanks again for coming on the show, Matt. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Likewise. You've been listening to Growing a B2B SaaS. Yoran has been ahead of customer success before founding his own startup. He's experiencing the same journey you are. We hope you've gotten some actionable advice from the show. And we hope you had fun along the way. We know we did. Make sure to like, rate, and review the podcast in the meantime. To find out more and to hook up with us on our social media sites, go to www.getreadinus.com. See you next time on Growing a B2B SaaS.